Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. For me, I have a healing ritual. It's just walking out in the sun, feeling the sunlight beam on my face, feeling it flood through my body. And for each person, it's going to be different. But you find that thing that helps make you feel whole again. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Kolf. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I've combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview is with Stacy Lannert. I want to let you know before introducing you to Stacy's story that while her message is optimistic, hopeful, and inspiring, there is sensitive subject matter, and I would not recommend having children listen to this episode. Stacy's childhood started out as idyllic until her alcoholic father began molesting and then raping her at the age of eight. This abuse would continue for another decade. At the age of 18, after countless years of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse, Stacy finally broke and took her father's life. She was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Stacy's life was now in a female penitentiary and in an unexpected twist, she discovered her true self and found her calling to give back within the confines of those walls. 18 years later, a journalist in Glamour magazine published an article about Stacy's story. There was an outcrying of public support and a public defender who would not give up on her case. Stacy would receive a prison phone call that she had been granted clemency by the governor and would walk free in six days. What followed is nothing short of extraordinary, in my opinion. Stacy would go on to graduate in the top of her class from law school and is now a public defender working to create positive change in our criminal justice system. In spite of the weight of her life story, Stacy is compassionate, funny, hopeful, and has a breathtaking message about the power of forgiveness and allowing your pain to become your purpose. Here's today's interview with Stacy Lannert. Stacy, welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you for having me. So, first of all, I want to share the conversation that you and I had on the phone before this interview as we set it up. Before we ended our conversation, I just checked in with you about if there was anything that you preferred not to talk about. And as we've been doing these interviews, so many of our guests 
who have been brave and vulnerable, but are talking about really often traumatic things. I don't know. I just wanted to mention that for you to know and for our audience to know that I hope this conversation is cathartic and empowering. And if there's any question you want to pass on, just to give you the safe space to do that, because I want you to feel great about this. Thank you. So I always begin by asking our guests to tell me about the backdrop of their childhood. And in your case, I think it's to begin in your earliest years before you were eight years old. So what what do you remember about your earliest years of childhood? I think they were normal, or at least I like to think they were normal. I have really fond memories before the age of eight. I would wait by the window for my dad to come home from work and my mom, she could pretty much do anything. You know, if they had the adult drama, I didn't realize it. I was just a very happy kid. And eventually that changed and it changed dramatically and drastically. What do you remember about the time when things began to change in your home? We moved. We actually moved quite a bit when I was younger. We had lived in Kansas City. My parents had separated briefly. I was in the second grade. I didn't really realize everything that was going on. And then we bought a house out in the country. We moved to the small town, Alhambra, Illinois. And it was my first time being in a rural setting with my family. And it started out great because we were all back together. It was a new beginning. Everything was going to be perfect. And then my dad started drinking more and more. And I still didn't notice it. There were just days that he seemed a lot happier. Eventually, he and I became more segregated than my sister and my mother. We would spend a lot of time together downstairs in the basement and we would start playing our little game. It would involve me touching him. And I didn't know what was what was going on. I didn't know that it was wrong. I actually felt like I was special. And you were about eight at the time that the abuse began, correct? Yes, I was eight. I was eight. And that happened for a while until I was nine. And then when I was nine, my dad actually raped me for the first time. And I knew that was wrong for multiple reasons. Mainly one, because it hurt so badly. And second, because he was just angry. He was very angry. And he had a look about him that I had never seen before. And how frequent was the abuse? I mean, how ever present is this in your little life? You know, it would change some weeks. It would be multiple times a week. Other times I'd have a stretch where it didn't happen at all. And it wouldn't always necessarily be a rape. Sometimes it would just be some kind of touching. It happened starting at the age of nine until I was 18. My parents divorced when I was 12. They wound up separating and then finally got divorced And for a while, I lived with him alone, and that was even harsher. And I know you have a sister. How much younger is she, and what is happening to your sister within the home and, you know, specific to your dad? 
my sister's two years younger than I am. And like I said, we were very segregated. We had a basement and all these altercations took place in our family basement. And pretty much dad and I would just hang out down there and mom and my sister would hang out upstairs. So she wasn't a party to any of it. Towards the end, my dad became violent towards her. Like he would hit her. He would be mean to her. And I really just felt like it was better for her than for what I was going through. She was angry at me. I mean, she was only 10 years old and she was angry at me because she felt like I was his favorite. And for so long, I just felt like I was taking it so that she didn't have to. And I know you've said, and you've already spoken to it, that there was really these two sides to your father. There was your funny dad and there was a monster. And one of your coping mechanisms, in a sense, was to separate those two people. Can you explain the duality of the relationship in your mind? I will try. It's very difficult to explain because, you know, if you've never lived through it, it's hard to understand how someone can separate a person that they see every day into two separate people. But when my dad was abusive towards me or mean towards me, he had very blue eyes, almost like a ice blue. And when he was drinking and when he would become this other person, like his whole eyes would change. His face would kind of distort. And in my brain, I would separate him into Tom and dad because I love my dad. But this man, Tom, he would hurt me. And, you know, to this day, I like to think that my dad was so drunk that he didn't really know the pain that he caused me. Your parents separated and your mom moves out with your sister, correct? Not at first. I lived with them at first too, but I was quite angry and I was a bit of a handful. I had started shoplifting and just being a rebellious kid. So then my mom sent me to live with my dad. And what happens at that time with you and your dad? Because your mom and sister are no longer in the house. He was very upset about the divorce. He didn't want it. So his drinking became more and more prevalent. And it was just, it's a point in my life that I barely remember because I blocked so much of it. It makes complete sense. I'm curious about the conversation you had with your babysitter and what, if anything, you had said to your mom at this point. We had a babysitter during the summer when I was 12, shortly after my parents had separated. My parents separated like really close to the end of school at the end of my eighth grade year. And my mom didn't want us home alone. So she found this lady who was willing to supervise Christy and I during the week. And then on the weekends, we would go to whichever parent was picking us up that Friday. My babysitter was married to a police officer. And every time my dad would come and pick me up, I guess I became very apprehensive. I was very scared. I felt like other people knew and that other people could see it. And I guess I was extremely anxious. So one day my babysitter sat me down in her kitchen and she just asked me, she point blank asked me if anything was going on. And of course, at first I denied it. And then she said, it happens to more people than you know. She had told me that it had happened to her and 
that she understood. And then she asked me again, is anything going on? And I told her that, yes, it was. And she said, it's okay, honey, we'll take care of it. This was near the end of the time that she was watching us. And that evening, my mom came and picked me up. My babysitter said, we need to have a talk. She pulled my mother to the side. My babysitter had her arm around me, and we were talking to my mom. And she told her that Tom hurt me. And in my mind, that meant everything, right? Like everything. And then later, I'm being sent to my dad's again. And I just didn't understand why. You know, why? Now she knows and I'm still having to go with him. And that weekend, that was the first time I ever tried to commit suicide. And I wound up in a hospital for taking too many pills. Years later, my mother and I argued about that. And she told me, she said, Stacy, I want you to stop telling people that I knew. And they said, well, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. You know, I have court documents where a babysitter testified and you knew. You were standing right there. My mom got very angry and she said, Stacy, that's not what she told me. And for whatever reason, I was able to push down the anger that I was starting to feel. I took a pause and a deep breath and I asked her, I said, well, mom, what do you think that she said? And she told me, she said, Stacy, she told me that Tom hurt you. And I said, okay, what did that mean to you? Because I knew what it had meant to me. It meant everything. And my mom said, it meant that he spanked you which my dad would be the one who would mete out punishment. And in that moment, I realized how important words are. You know, as sexual abuse survivors, a lot of times we tone down the words. We make them digestible for other people to be able to hear. And when we make them digestible for other people, they lose the power that's behind it, they, it loses what the true definition, the true meaning of what it is that we went through. And in that moment, I forgave her because I felt like either she lived really heavily in denial or this is what she needed to be able to cope. And I just, I felt a compassion for my mother that I had never felt before. Yeah, I read that about you speaking about the power of language and specificity yes, and saying things that are very hard and direct because they're hard for other people. So you saying you're, was abused, the babysitter heard is, oh, he's spanking her. And what you were really saying is, my father's raping me. Right. Eventually, you weren't living with your father at all, had moved out, and... A month later, you got a call from your sister. Tell me about that call and what she said. So at this time, I was almost 18. I was living in Guam. My mom had remarried. She had married my stepdad shortly before my 16th birthday and um, moved halfway around the world. Before I had left, I made sure that my sister was somewhere else. She was living with an aunt. So I felt like she was safe and it was okay for me to leave. I would have never left her in that household with him alone. 
So she was living with my aunt. I went and lived with my mother. That didn't last long. I don't know exactly what happened there. I don't know if my dad cut off the child support to my aunt. I don't know if Christy felt like with Stacy gone, now her and dad could have the kind of relationship that she had always wanted. Well, she wound up moving back in with him. And about a month after she moved in with him, I get a call from her. She's scared. She's terrified. Dad's screaming in the background. She's asking me to come home or asking if she can come live with me. We get off the phone. Then my dad calls and calls her all kinds of names and says he's putting her on a plane today. She's got to get out of there or he's going to kill her. And what had happened was she had skipped a total of 75 days of school and my dad had found out about it and was extremely angry. Education was always very important to him and he just couldn't handle Christy on her own. She was also very rebellious by this time. So I called my mom at work, asked if Christy could come live with us. She said no, that I was enough and I was more than a handful, which granted I was. And I remember thinking, it's April. I've got one month till I turn 18. I can go back and it's going to be okay. So that's what I did. I wound up going back to try to take care of my sister. When you were 18, this was the year that you had enough. You stood up for yourself and you took your dad's life. What point do you decide that you're going to stand up to him? At what point does ending his life come into play as an option? So, you know, it was something that was nice to think about, right? Think about my dad being gone. Not necessarily how that was going to happen, just that he was gone. Of course, I would dream that it would happen in a car accident or a heart attack. Just, just be gone. And that never actually happened. So... I would think about it, but I never really thought that I was capable of taking, of stopping him, of killing him. When I turned 18, I walked back in that front door and I thought, I'm an adult now. All this is going to stop. And I walked back in that door 18 just with this pride and confidence I had never had. At our front door, my father raped me and beat me for the very first time, beat me to the point where I passed out. This was after he had, he had even cut my hair, held a knife to me. And I remember when I woke up from being passed out, he threw $40 at me and told me happy birthday. I just laid there on the floor in this daze thinking this is never going to end. And I still have my little sister and I really didn't know where to go for help. She turned 16 on July 10th, and I thought, if I can just hang on till July 10th, I'll get her, we'll go away, I'll get a job, get an apartment. I thought, he'll never find us, which, you know, it was just my immature hope to be able to escape. I had also brought a puppy, and um, she meant everything <laughs> to me in that moment. I don't know why. We had a back door. And my puppy ran into the living room where my dad was seated on the couch drinking and she just peed on the rug in front of him. Oh my gosh. I mean, I was so torn. Part of me was so devastated because I knew he was about to get angry and the other part of me was so proud of this little puppy for, you know, kind of standing up to him. But he got really upset and kicked my dog and 
he had told me that she's out of the house by tonight. And I told him, that's fine. She's going to go and I'm going to go. We're all, and Christy's going to go. We're going to go. Just let us be, let us go. And um, he told me, you go, the puppy goes, she stays. And he pointed to my sister who had heard the yelling and who had come out. And I just started crying, kind of lost my, my mind. And he pulled her into his bedroom and locked the door. And when he did that, I ran out the front door. His bedroom windows faced the front of the house into the lawn, into the street. And so I couldn't get into the bedroom door because it was locked. And I remember running out the front door, running towards the windows. And I wasn't tall enough to actually beat on the window. Like I would jump up and I could just barely hit the windowsill. And I I remember feeling so defeated that I just shrank down right there on the lawn and just started crying. And people always ask me, they say, well, why didn't you run to a neighbor for help? Because even though there were houses like all around me, I just felt so alone, so isolated. I didn't know how to seek help. And when my sister came out of that bedroom, I never asked her what happened. I never, I just pretended. I I pretended like nothing had happened. And we somehow went downstairs, recuperated, like got our stuff together. We went out to a fair. And when we were getting ready to pull back into the house, I said, let's not go there. Let's not ever go there again. Let's just leave. And I went and got a hotel room and um, we were there for about an hour and the magnanimity of leaving dawned on me. I had a car, but the title's in his name. What am I going to do? The only cash that I have is in the basement and I didn't bring it. My dog is still there. How could I leave my dog with him? I had to go back. And so I went back to the house to get my stuff. And at some point, my father had placed a rifle down in the basement. And when I was in the basement and I saw it, I thought I heard a noise. And so I went to pick it up because I was scared. And then I guess it was just anger. I guess anger just flooded me and I wound up picking it up and I thought this is never going to happen again, never, ever again. And I went up the stairs and I shot him. I had hit him in the shoulder. Like it was just, it was a 22. Like I didn't really think that that could necessarily kill someone. I thought it would just make him realize that he needed to leave us alone, right? I thought that if I could hurt him, maybe it would stop him. So he didn't realize that he had been shot. He actually thought that he had broke his shoulder, his clavicle. And he started asking for help and he wanted me to call 911. And, you know, my brain just all of a sudden kicked in. It was like, oh my God, what have I just, what have I done? What have I just done? I opened up the front door. I flipped on the porch light and I went to get the phone to call 911. We didn't have cell phones back then. We just had landlines. And earlier when my father and I, this, we had that huge argument, he had ripped all the phones 
out of the wall and I didn't have a phone. And as I was searching the house frantically for one, he just started cussing and getting angry. And he said, just you wait. And I thought, oh my God, if he ever finds out, we're dead. We're done. And I didn't care so much about myself at this moment, but I cared about my sister and I wanted her to have a life, a life free of all the pain. And I wound up, I shot him a second time and then he, he died. Do you remember what you felt when you realized that he had died? I heard a breath, but I didn't know. I didn't know if he was alive or dead. I just, like my brain just stopped. Everything just stopped. Nothing, you know, did I have a breakdown? Did I have a mental break? I, I believe I had a mental break at that moment because I somehow functioned, but I don't remember being able to function. I don't know how to explain it. It was so surreal that it was like none of it was actually really happening. And the police arrive. That was the next day. So I had told one of my little friends what had happened and I didn't know what to do, right? Like I was lost and I needed somebody to tell me what to do because I didn't know. And so I called another teenager. (laughs) I mean, I stupid move after stupid move after stupid move. And he helped me concoct a story that it wasn't us. We walked in, saw it. And you know what? I wanted to believe it so bad that part of me did. But the police knew. I mean, they knew. They wound up taking my sister and I down to the station for questioning and my friend. And There was this one detective and the detective was questioning me and he asked me, he said, has your dad ever hurt you? And I started crying and said no. And the detective came back and he said, look, I believe something, something more happened in that house. And here's your one chance to tell me everything. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've I've made so many mistakes that maybe I can tell somebody. Maybe I can tell somebody now. And I told him. I told him everything. I told him about the abuse. I told him how my father would rape me. I told him about the people that I had told. I told him about how I had tried to get away. And I felt like that detective actually believed me. And then they wound up putting me in a cell. And I fell asleep. So the next day, and not because of what had happened with my dad, but I think because I finally was able to tell someone just everything and all of it be off of me, like just be free from it, from all the pain. And all the exhaustion of the secrecy and the shame and the waiting for the next time for you or your sister just collapsed. Yes, yes. Like just, it was just lifted. I don't even know how to explain it. And it wasn't from, like I said, it wasn't from the act itself. I mean, that's that's a horror in and of itself. It was just finally being able to tell someone and they believe me. And 
I wish I had had that courage to tell someone before this nightmare happened. You do end up being charged with the murder of your father and sentenced to life in prison. Yes, I sat in jail 894 days and went to trial. And I was found guilty of murder in the first degree. And I was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. And a psychologist who testified on your behalf, who specialized in sexual abuse, said her family failed her, her school system failed her, and she did not get help from anyone. She also said you'd been victimized by a conspiracy of silence, by a babysitter who you confided in about the abuse, and by your mother who suspected the abuse but did not stop it. I know also, and in part because my experience in, in covering some rape trials and trials of sexual assaults, that often the victims are re-victimized and questioned. And I know that was part of your experience. Why did you go back at 12? Why did you decide to live with him? How was that for you to go through that much abuse and be in that much pain and then have people question your choices as a 12-year-old girl who was being abused? I think that was one of the most difficult aspects of all this is here, I want people to understand why I did what I did, right? And now not only do I have the shame of what he did to me, I also have the shame of what I did to him. And then to keep on it, the shame of, well, you should have done this, you should have done that, you should have done this. You know, I always tell people, number one, you're we have to erase the shame that surrounds sexual abuse because placing blame on the victim just makes it worse. You know, I made choices I did because I hoped it would get better, because I hoped that my dad would change, because I hoped that he would turn back into my dad, the person who loved me. And I think that all children always want their parent to love them and to be the best parent they can be. So having to defend those choices, it was extremely difficult. Plus, you know, I was trying to survive and I know I made so many mistakes and poor choices. I also know that I was a kid. I was a kid in pain and I was doing the best I could with what I had at the time. You're sentenced. You're sentenced to life and prison without the possibility of parole, as you said. But a judge had recommended your case for clemency. The existing governor died before he could sign those papers. And the incoming governor, Governor Holden, just never responded. No response. So you are left in the unknown and you are an inmate. What was your day-to-day life in prison? So when I first got to prison, I was okay. You know, I'm in a place where for the first time ever, I can sleep in a bed at night without fear. There were rules. And if you understood the rules, then survival was easy. And so in a way, I felt safer in prison than I had ever felt walking in my front door. What are the rules to survive in a women's penitentiary? Well, they change every day, but part of it is just, you know, kind of keep your head down, be willing to stand up for what is yours, and be selective with who you become friends with. 
and know the institutional rules. I would just kind of stay to myself, find things that made me happy. And prison, it's a life. Even though I was incarcerated, there were still things that I could do to be a benefit to society. I was the president of Outreach, which worked with at-risk juveniles. It was similar to Scared Straight, although we wouldn't scare them. We would just be honest and say, here are my life choices. This is what I did that led me here. And through that, three girls wound up telling us for the very first time about their fathers. And that led to the prosecution of three fathers, you know, and... The um, other thing that I was involved with was training dogs. I worked with a service dog organization that would train dogs for people who were handicapped. So I was giving freedom to someone who was incarcerated by their body. And no matter where you are, you can have a life. There were more things that I wanted in my life, but I was doing, I was doing the best I could with what I had. And what would you say was the darkest side of being in prison and what was the lightest or bright moments that that you witnessed? So I think the bright moments were the ways that we could reach out and we could make a difference. And also some of the friendships that you would create with some of the people there. You know, I wound up creating some very deep friendships because here are people who also went through something similar to what I did. You know, I would say that probably 90%, 90, 95% of the women who are incarcerated have been sexually or physically abused by someone that they love. And so I don't have to explain why I did the things I did or why I made the choices that there was just acceptance. There was acceptance. I think the dark part of it was growing up and realizing that, you know, I'm never going to have a chance to see who I could have actually become, you know, like I'm growing into this amazing person who cares deeply and thinks and feels and is healing and I'll never be able to truly love another person because I'm in this concrete jungle I'll never have a dog of my own. I think the darkness was more of the things that I would never have. The hardest for me was when my sister had her child. My niece was born and, oh, it just felt like there was this huge hole inside of me that would never be filled. My sister would bring her up on visits and I would hold her and I would smell the little baby smell and I just knew she was going to grow up never knowing me. And I would never grow up knowing her. And it just broke my heart. So you believed inherently that you would live your life and die in prison? You know, I always had hope. So I was assigned this public defender and she was my appellate public defender. She came to me one day and she said, we're never going to win an appeal, but we might be able to get clemency for you. And she asked if she could help with that. And, you know, her belief in me was so inspiring to me. It changed my entire outlook on about myself because beforehand I was so ashamed of just everything, of what I had done, of what I had allowed to happen. I thought prison would be the rest of my life. And 
I guess that realization hadn't quite sunk in when my public defender came to me. And I remember asking her, why would you want to do this for me? You know everything I've done. And she looked at me and she said, because I don't think you should spend the rest of your life here. And that was just, I mean, it still, it still makes me cry to this day because, you know, there was someone, there was someone who cared. There was someone who cared about what happened to me. Someone who didn't have to, but did anyway. And her caring led me to start believing in myself and wanting more for myself. So we started compiling this clemency packet. Governor Carnahan, we believed, was going to grant me clemency. Just all we wanted was the without parole taken off. We wanted a life sentence. I hoped that they would look at my case and say, you know what? This isn't worth life without parole. This is a life sentence because of everything that I had went through. And um, we thought Governor Carnahan was going to grant that. And he wound up perishing in a plane accident. The next governor in was Governor Holden. And he said, if Stacey would like clemency, there's a lot of political pressure against her. She needs to get public support. Well, how do you do that? You don't just issue a press release from your prison cell saying, hey, I want to leave now. And, you know, the very next week, somebody had Google Child Abuse, the website that my public defender, Ellen Floatman, had put up for me, popped up. And this Glamour Magazine article writer did a story on me. She interviewed me. She was patient. She was kind, but she was also unbiased. And then that led to just a ton of media, ton of it. And I remember towards the end, it wasn't about me seeking clemency anymore. It was about me giving a voice to all the people who wrote me letters who said, I believe you. This happened to me. I could have been you. And I didn't want anybody to make the same mistakes I had made. I wanted people to be stronger and I wanted people to make different choices. And I really felt like I was helping other people to find their voice because sometimes I was the very first person that they would tell that it happened to them too. So Governor Holden left office and it's been 18 years in prison. And the governor at the time, Matt Blunt, said, after an exhaustive review of the facts, I am commuting the sentence of Stacey Lannert, who suffered extensive abuse before she took action against the man who raped her and subjected her to other horrible physical and emotional abuse. Stacey, hearing those words for the first time, what did that mean to you? It was life-altering for numerous reasons. One, because I had waited 10 years for a clemency answer, and I just never received one. And Governor Matt Blunt was on his way out, and, you know, it it seemed like my clemency was going to be passed over again. Holden left office and hadn't answered it. And I remember just being so devastated that here's the one person, one person who can change my life with the stroke of a pen, and I just never received an answer. And even if it was no, I wanted to know that because I wanted, I wanted to be able to reconcile spending the rest of my life in prison or having hope. It's very difficult to have hope when you're in a place where hate laughs and love cries 
And I remember sitting there in prison thinking, you know, I'm 36 years old. How many years can I possibly live? And how many years can I possibly live here? But if I do commit suicide, then I'll be trapped in this plane of existence forever. And I really hung on to this poem that a friend had sent me. And in it, it had this line and it said, may you never hurt your whole self when parts of you are hurting. And every time that despair would overtake me, I would just say that little verse and it somehow got me through. And um, Saturday, I was sitting on my bed at count time reading a magazine. I got called to the rotunda. And you never want to be called to the rotunda at count time because it means either someone has passed away or you're in big trouble. (laughs) So I went out there and the officer, it was an officer I didn't know, handed me the institutional phone. And when they picked up the phone, it was my attorney, Ellen. And all I heard her say was, Stacy. And then the recording came on. This is a call from correctional facility. Da, 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 da. And I had to wait for this recording. And then she pressed the appropriate button. And then she told me, she said, we got it. And I said, we got what? <laughs> she said, we got clemency. And I remember saying, we did. And she said, yes, we did. She said, the governor commuted your sentence to 20 years time served immediate release. And I said, well, what does that mean? And she said, I don't know. When you find out, call me back. (laughs) And um, I set that phone down and just cried for a moment and then hung up and uh, went back to my room. But as soon as I hit that doorway of my room, I just fell fell to the floor and just sobbed, sobbed with just everything in me. I couldn't believe this was going to actually be over. And then six days later, I was released, walked out. And you've said that 18 years in prison was transformative to you, but you've said that in a positive way. Who were you walking in those doors versus the day you walked out? I had lived through so much, so much horror and so much pain that, you know, to the outside world, I'm this 18-year-old adult, but on the inside, I was broken, just completely pulverized. And during that 18 years, I discovered who I am, free of the pain and suffering and just, I grew up. I just grew up and I actually liked who I grew into. What was the first thing you did when you got out of prison? I feel like that's a cliche question, but I have to ask it. (laughs) So a couple things. One, um, only one person could pick me up. So my attorney, Ellen, she was the one that I asked to pick me up. I mean, she had fought so doggedly for me for a decade for clemency. So she picked me up and then we went to this restaurant and met all my family and friends. They had all gathered. And that was all just such a blur. And once again, very surreal. But the very first thing that I chose to do was I went into a gas station and tried to buy gum. (laughs) Gum. Exciting. Because we weren't allowed gum. And I chose two different kinds and I paid for it. And I kind of somewhere suspected the clerk to be like, no, you can't have this. But I was successful in my gum purchase. What type of gum? <laughs> I know, right? 
I don't even really remember. Yeah, It, it was, it was absolutely huge because somebody had given me some cash at the restaurant and I put two different packs of gum up. I think one of them was like an orange and another one was a bubble gum because I really just wanted to blow bubbles. Like I just, I wanted to feel gum, right? Like there's, there's freedom in being able to just chew and blow a bubble. And the freedom part hadn't quite dawned on me yet, but I thought, you know, maybe this will, maybe this will help me feel free. And it did. It completely did how far you have come from that day and your double gum purchase is amazing. But that was a journey and a road. And I know a big part of that road, and you and I spoke about this over the phone, was forgiveness. Yes. Were you able to forgive your father? I was. And that actually happened while I was in prison. So throughout the course of my incarceration, I would attend church or I would attend some kind of faith-based programming. And I would always hear about forgiveness. And I would get so angry. I would be so angry because how how do you expect me to forgive? Don't you know what he did to me? Don't you know what I lived through? Don't you know what he did? And I felt betrayed. I mean, this is my dad. He was supposed to love me and he took my innocence and my spirit. And So I alternated between that anger and that sadness and that despair. And then I started speaking out. You know, I was doing these interviews and I realized that I wanted forgiveness for myself. I wanted forgiveness for what I had done. But it also dawned on me that I could never find forgiveness for myself until I forgave him first. And boy, when I did it, when I was able to finally forgive my father, It was just this, you know, it was another time that that weight was just lifted off me, lifted off my shoulders, and it allowed me to blossom. I think that anger is a chain that drags you down. And when we're able to cut that chain, it frees us, it frees our spirit, it frees our heart. And it's just, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And it's it's difficult. It's difficult to do. But forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean forgetting. Forgiveness means releasing the hold that that person has on you. And what is your relationship with your mom today? We actually have a really good relationship. So same thing. I can't stay angry at her and move forward because that anger always drags you back into that pit. So if I want to move forward, if I want to grow, I need to be able to blossom without chains. And like I said, anger, it's just a chain. You know, it it was really hard for me to have a relationship with my mom because I was so angry with her. But once I learned everything that my mom had went through in her past, my mom was horribly abused, sexually abused by her father. It allowed me to be able to forgive her because she did the best she could at the time. You obviously have had an incredible road of healing from all this trauma, and you just spoke beautifully to the role that forgiveness has played in your healing. But I also know that letting go of shame for both the abuse and, and the act of taking your father's life, letting go of that has, has been pivotal. And secrecy, being able to speak openly and bravely about what you went through. So I think the shame is always going to be there. 
I think I'm always going to feel shame. I feel shame for what I did. I wish that I could change it. I know I'm never going to be able to. And I still feel shame for what happened to me. Not because I allowed it to happen. I've been able to change over that pattern of thinking, but it did happen. However, I think there's a way to not become bogged down by the shame. I don't allow it to control me anymore. I acknowledge it for what it is. I accept it as part of my life and I move forward. Part of the reason that I'm able to do that is because I don't live in secrecy about it anymore. And I think that when other people know what you have lived through, what you have survived, and love you, not in spite of it, just love you, and they embrace the whole of you, then it helps you to embrace that whole of yourself. So you've shared your story, millions of people sitting next to a stage on Oprah Winfrey, huge platforms. What is the reaction? What do people say to you when they hear you share your story? And what do those connections mean to you? So I think that when I tell others about my past, I think that it gives them an outlet. I think that when we communicate, we create. And so in order to change the secrecy of abuse, be it sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, I think that we have to bring it into the light. So much of it occurs in the darkness. And if we really want to change this pandemic of abuse, the only way to do that is to shed the light on it. And that won't happen until we lift our voices. You know, for so long, I believe that if people knew what I allowed to happen to me, that they would shun me or that they would hate me. And I I wasn't met with that. I've been met with acceptance. And if I can be met with acceptance, so can everyone else. And where you are today, did you get your college degree in prison or after? I got my college degree once I came home and I started at a community college and then I transferred to a four-year and I graduated and then I went to graduate school. And today you are a public defender occupying the exact profession of the woman who played a huge role and really saving your life in a sense. What does your work mean to you today? And at what moment did you decide that you wanted to work within the criminal justice system? When I was going to school for my undergrad, my major was psychology and my minor was poli-sci. And I remember thinking, I need to do something where my background comes in because, I mean, it's going to, right? One quick Google search and people know my whole life story. I didn't think I'd ever be able to sit for the bar, receive my license, but I did. I was able to hold a license and um, I went to law school because I wanted to challenge juveniles being in prison with life without parole because I thought that I am one of the best examples of a person who has the ability to change. So I went to law school really to be an advocate. And then I was told that I could sit for the bar, and then I did, and I passed, and I had my law degree. And I thought, how do I want to use this? And I wanted to give hope to others who found themselves in darkness, and I want them to know that there's someone out there fighting for them 
in the criminal justice system. And, you know, we're not always going to win. We just aren't. But we're out there zealously advocating for another person. And that's what makes our criminal justice system one of the greatest systems in the world. You know, people ask me all the time if I'm bitter or if I feel betrayed. No, it might take a long time for the wheels of justice to move, but they do move. And hopefully now I'm one out there helping them move along. Where do you stand today in your process of healing? Where do you think you are? I think healing is always going to be a lifelong process. You know, so many times people who have survived sexual abuse are called survivors. And I really like to think of it more as a victor. Like I'm, I'm a victor. I have overcome what has happened to me. I'm always going to have memories. I'm always going to have flashbacks. You know, intimacy is going to be difficult. That's a part of who I am. But I think that we have to find healing rituals that work for each and every one of us. People look at me so many times and they say, oh, you've got it together. What's your secret? It is no secret. It's a journey. It's a journey that I'm going to be on every single day for the rest of my life. Part of that is being self-aware, knowing what I need and when I need it. You know, that pain, when it threatens to overwhelm, I need to be able to look at it, understand it, and move forward. And for me, I have a healing ritual. It's just walking out in the sun, feeling the sunlight beam on my face, feeling it flood through my body. And for each person, it's going to be different. But you find that thing that helps make you feel whole again. What do you think are the qualities that live within you that have enabled you to be where you are today? I don't know if there's so much qualities as they are as just having hope and a faith that there's more, right? Like even when I was in prison, I would have this faith that there's there's got to be more to this life than just what I have right here and a hope that there was more. So I think that's it. I think it's hope and faith. Even to this day, I have a hope that I can help others. I have a hope that I can change someone's life for the better. I have a hope that by sharing my story, it helps people make better choices. It helps make someone who's a victim turn into a victor. I hope that I can help someone lead a fuller life, a whole life. I believe all of that and more. And I know that that is happening right now and and when our listeners hear your story. So thank you, Stacey. You're welcome. All right, we do a fun little thing here at the end called Rapid Fire, where I say something and you finish the sentence or quickly answer the question. Sound good? Okay. Favorite book? I love anything by Nora Roberts. Night on the town or night on the couch? Night on the couch. Although after all this, probably definitely a night on the town. It is pandemic time. Yes. Yes. Your biggest vice? My biggest vice would have to be soda. I love to drink soda and I try to keep away from it, but oh, I love it. What I wish I knew when I was 20. Oh, everything. (laughs) Every single thing. I think the main thing that I wish I knew when I was 20 was that it does get better. It does get better. In 10 years, I hope to be. In 10 years, I hope to be, you know, 
I don't really even think that far ahead. Like, I just hope that in 10 years that I'm happy and that I am healthy and that I'm just out there changing the world. Thank you, Stacy. And where can we find you online, find your book, where people can follow your work? So my book is on Amazon. The title of it is Redemption. It's it's a very difficult book to read. Just warning, there's triggers there. But I, I wrote that book because I really wanted people to be able to see how abuse and love can be intermingled. And it's not just all a horror show. There's dynamics in every family. I don't really do social media. <laughs> But people can always contact me through my Healing Sisters website. Great. And what's the domain? It is healingsisters.org. Okay, great. Thank you again, Stacy. You are awesome. And I'm really excited to share this conversation with our listeners. Thank you. Okay, be well. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Today's interview supports Stacy's charity, Healing Sisters. She created the charity to allow sexual abuse victims, which as you know, she calls victors, not victims, the opportunity to experience a real bond and the healing power gained from sharing your story with other people. As you know, we are certainly aligned with her belief that sharing your hardest truths can be of service to others and ultimately set you free. Look for the links in our show notes to learn more about Stacy and her work. I hope you were as moved by today's episode as I was. And as always, thank you for making the time to listen to All the Wiser. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Kessie Hollister. Thanks for being a part of the All the Wiser podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast, read our show notes, or get in touch with us at allthewiserpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at All the Wiser Podcast. Send us a note. We would love to hear from you. And as always, thanks for listening. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.